0: And welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Percy and I'm here today with Nick. Hey there. And Todd. Scoodly Bop. This week we're here to chat about paranoia in TTRPGs and the way the game Paranoia specifically creates this. Just as a forewarning, this episode requires ultraviolet clearance. If you are a red-level troubleshooter or are planning to play paranoia but are unfamiliar with the GM's handbook, turn back now or you'll risk getting treason stars. We really mean it friend computer will terminate you if you do not have ultraviolet clearance and continue listening to this episode. Okay, cool. Now we can talk. Now we can talk. (laughs) Now that we're among other ultraviolet troubleshooters.
1: I'm so glad that Squick has been reincarnated as an ultraviolet (laughs) (laughs) troubleshooter. Squick.
0: He's leveled up significantly.
1: Leveled up so much. Uh, Okay, so I know that I heard uh then talk about this a little bit um in the interview with you nick um and i had like an inkling about this but all of the points are made up is that true
2: is that actually true (laughs) so yeah this is one of the interesting things about the gm's guide to paranoia is that uh it basically says everything is just up to you the gm to decide and your main goal is to kind of keep the players um Engaged and paranoid and afraid and just, like, perpetuate that as much as possible. I think it gives some rough guidelines for, like, these might be target numbers, but really it's very much just... Uh, the attitude is very much just do something that makes the story interesting for yourself and for the players in the game.
0: I think the most succinct way to sum this up is to share the anecdote that they give at the beginning of the... um. Of the paranoia red clearance GM advice section in the handbook, um, where they tell a story about how they were developing a GM screen for the game, and their original thought was to just have in giant letters make some shit up on the back of the screen, <laughs> um, and they didn't do that because there are like some things that are good to reference on the back of a GM screen, but that is pretty pretty good encapsulation of their attitude toward toward the game. They very much encourage you to just make some shit make some shit up um all throughout the gm handbook essentially anytime it's like you know how do you like if you don't roll dice how do you decide this and if you don't roll dice how do you decide that and it's like well (laughs) what makes sense in the context of this moment
2: which is a thing worth pointing out unlike say d20 games they do phrase this as the most important rule in the book the gm does not roll dice Ever. I think they have a line somewhere where they say, God doesn't play dice with the universe and neither should you. Um, and they, you know, in a kind of more, I guess, powered by the apocalypse way, they do say, you know, the ca- player characters get to roll dice and you just decide what happens to them. There is no, you know, rolling for enemy attack rolls or rolling to see how hurt they get. Everything is just up to the GM to decide on the spot.
0: They do, however, encourage like, First of all, they say if you really want to roll dice, like I get like, like <laughs> fine fine, we
2: guess. <laughs>
0: um they do encourage, like there are a lot of um, not to put too fine a point on it, there are a lot of like ways that they list in here that you can just fuck with everybody. Um, mm. like one of the pieces of GM advice, just smile all the time. Um or that classic GM trick where like when the players are being kind of rowdy or rambunctious, you pick up a whole bunch of dice and you roll them very audibly behind the screen. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, yeah. So it very much encourages things like dice rolling as like a like a like a subversive tool of manipulation, but definitely not as a means of actually resolving any game mechanics. Um like at first blush, this kind of thing feels to me like um wild and scary from a player perspective but i'm curious yeah about how about how this impacts gameplay and what it means about how narrative and storytelling works in the game if you're giving the gm the power to just like make shit up in the moment and in fact hinging the entire game on it mm-hmm.
1: i mean i feel like it would allow you to like both follow the rule of cool um and to also just say like Always move the story forward, even if a dice check wouldn't do that. Like, not necessarily saying your players should always get what they want, they shouldn't. It should be interesting, and that wouldn't be interesting. Um, But I know in like a D20 system, I've had times where I'm like, oh, and then like this is going to happen. And it's like, nope, there was a stunning strike on that character. You actually can't do that because that's not how the game is supposed to work because it's a combat simulator, not a narrative simulator. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think saying like you don't roll on stuff, it just happens or it doesn't happen um, allows you more narrative flexibility there.
2: I think it allows you narrative flexibility. And also, it strikes me that this game is supposed to be funny. It's much, you know, comedy is so much about timing and about like the kind of precise fracture or precise control over the scope of consequences or the scale of consequences that this really empowers the GM to like take whatever the player's input is and run with it in a way that's funny, which. It's not going to be the case if you're using dice to resolve everything on the GM side of the screen, probably because you just get random results. And sometimes, you know, they're not huge when you want them to be huge or Mm -hmm. small when it would be funniest for them to be small. So,
1: well, I I'm thinking back to our episode about 5E and narrative implications of the D20 system and how like our big bad um, final fight ended with like a lot of people missing and it was just like really unsatisfying in a bunch of different ways for people. And this is like, no, just don't you like if someone rolls something and it's crazy, like, yeah, let that happen. And if someone wants to like tie a blender to a jet engine and see if that can make a hoverboard for them and they fail spectacularly, you should blow them up. And that's cool. That's fine.
0: Yeah. Well, cause I think, I think Ultimately, like the way that paranoia defines the role of the GM is to craft an engaging experience for the players and put the players at the center of the story. And this, I think, actually does that really, really well because it takes away like the GM is encouraged to do stuff that is triggered by something that a player does. Either like something that they fail at doing that they're attempting to do or something that somebody does to somebody else or rolling it like it's it's all centered on everything is triggered by something the player is doing. Mm-hmm. So it's really making their, it's making everything that they do matter in a really significant way. And it's letting you tailor the response that the world provides to whatever it is that is happening, that the players are doing like to, to make the most of, of what that is as opposed to actually, like, you know, having a room where they have to meet a DC 12 perception check and they roll like a two and you're like, well, I guess I can't, like, I can't, <laughs> I can't just fudge it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause they rolled so poorly. So I guess they just don't get to see the cool thing. Um, Paranoia is very much like the cool things are there and you should give them to the players. Um, no matter what.
2: Well, the thing I think that it, it also does, and that the clones and so on help with because the stakes are lower, um, But that it shares with like Powered by the Apocalypse games is this ethos that the consequences of the players trying to do something should never be nothing, which is a thing I increasingly find frustrating in D20 games. It's like, yeah, if you try to strap the to uh, like wire the blender into the jet engine, you might fail disastrously, but then the GM should blow you the heck up. You know, like it's mm-hmm. like there should be a consequence as opposed to most d20 games where, like, if you roll low, like Percy was just saying, the result is usually just like nothing happens and we and nothing changes. And that's not mm-hmm. as interesting. That doesn't provide as much propellant for the narrative.
0: Yeah. Well, and you one of the rules in the GM handbook is yes and. Um, like it quite literally mm. says, go read a book about improv, um, <laughs> which I would not personally recommend anybody do as a person was used to be really obsessed with improv comedy, but that's another episode. I mean, I think James
1: D'Amato's how to play the, or the ultimate RPG guide, uh, the ultimate RPG gameplay guide. That's the full title. Um, talks about improv in a way that's like really useful.
2: Um, mm-hmm. so like go read that book. Yeah, if
0: don't you read that to, book. Don't read <laughs> <Truth> <laughs> for
1: the record,
2: James Damato has not paid any of us to plug that book repeatedly on the podcast. In fact, I have technically <laughs>
1: paid James Damato a number of times because I've
2: purchased this book
1: multiple times now. Um,
0: <laughs> Powerful.
1: I'm just simping for good improv rules in RPGs.
0: But yeah, I, I think the the game is built in such a way that like. It's it's really openly encouraging this collaborative, creative relationship between the GM and the players. And as much as the old version of Paranoia is built, I think to create this like antagonistic sort of relationship, that's not necessarily the vibe that I get from Paranoia Red.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll agree. I'll yes and that because while it is collaborative, <laughs> I I do think it's more antagonistic than a lot
0: of games. Um, sure. By paranoia standards, it's extremely yes. wholesome.
2: Yeah, yeah. I still love the. I I wish we'd been able to play in person because I still want to see the number the number one troubleshooter <laughs> thing in action. Mm. I can't remember if we talked about this before, but we I did. desperately, yeah, yeah, I desperately want to see that in play because <laughs> I just think it would be delightful.
0: I mean i th- I think the I think the way the book is written is really really smart because it makes use of all like it it knows. People who love to role play really, really well. Cause like under number one troubleshooter, it also is like if they found like a cool hat or like they have a little goldfish named Steven, like take that away from them, you know, whatever. Um, because they know, um, that was my really sneaky Taz reference. Um, <laughs> here we are. Um, but they know that like players, like, like they have a sense of what players care about and they're really equipping the GM to understand like like what tools you really have at your disposal and how simple it can be to really mess with everybody.
1: Like one of the things that I think is interesting about this game and how it sows seeds of distrust, um, and how it like, it's, it's built into some of the character creation, which I think is cool. And it allows, like, I think so many games are about like Bring the party together and not splitting the party and like making sure that everyone like works towards a shared goal. And what I think is really interesting about the mechanics of this is both like in character creation, you're supposed to kind of like build resentments. And then in the way the GM is supposed to work with the players in these like one on one sessions. Um, where that player gets specific information that only they get and that revealing that information to other players can be treasonous and can get them killed um, is it sows this like mechanical distrust into the bones of the game, um, which I think I struggled with and like against because I feel like so many games that I've played are about not doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think our group but probably also like very much me um had a lot of like oh i like shouldn't act on those impulses because those impulses have been beaten out of me by other games where like it's not <laughs> cool to do those things um and so that's something i'd be interested in like playing with more in another playthrough of this game or like exploring a different campaign um and like how the gm can utilize that like secret or withheld information um both against the players to get them to antagonize each other but also to like mess with them more.
0: Yeah, well it talks a lot about making making use of the fact that like like it talks a lot about getting the players on your side so that then like if they're mo- the more willing they are to go along with your ideas and with what you're doing and what you're presenting to them, the easier time you're going to have as as the GM, but I think Yeah, I I think there's also a lot of ways to subvert that impulse of, like, oh, I shouldn't fuck over my other party members because, like, it's a game that we're playing together. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, yeah, I I do also think, like, I think we said this in the storytelling. I was like, this is a game that you probably want to play with people that you are good friends (laughs) with. Mm -hmm. Not with random strangers. Not with random strangers. And yet here we are. Well, y'all weren't random strangers. No.
2: I think the the secret societies helps with that a lot because it's a way that most games don't have built into them where you can give the players uh like not only different but sometimes directly conflicting goals mm-hmm. um you know, so that ca- that can help and it also helps build the idea of paranoia because of course theoretically unless you've like listened to our podcast uh the players don't know that every one of them necessarily is in a secret society or actually since we're getting into the ultraviolet clearance according to the game master's guide every person in the world of paranoia is in a secret society like Mm -hmm. one or the other that's what they say your assumption should should be Mm-hmm. as the game masters that every person has a secret society and many, but not all of them have mutant powers as opposed to what you tell the players, which is that some of you may have secret societies and or mutant powers.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really, I think that's a great point in that if you have people, cause like I've heard playthroughs of paranoia, like the hello from the magic tavern game of paranoia that Ben was inspired to play our campaign by they're totally like from the get go. They're like telling on each other and you know like like they're they're super chomping at the bit to fuck each other over. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily the case for our game, but there are a lot of tools that like let you start to kind of pull on those strings and and encourage that. And I think, yeah, directly oppositional goals is a great example of like dissolving that like team mentality. Mm-hmm. And
1: the the like metagaming aspect of like, you know that other that other characters know things that your character doesn't because of how like gameplay works at the table. And so like, you know that someone is going to do something and you're not supposed to act on that in a normal game, but in Paranoia, you can like perk your ears up at like, oh, did you say something about the Death Leopards? Huh? Huh? You and the Death Leopards? Should I turn you in? Is that what I should do? I can turn you in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think like encourages that style of play.
0: I feel like this is a good segue to a question that I am like, ro- have been rolling around since we played the campaign, which is um, what is the, what is the difference between the GM and friend computer mm. and the and the roles that they play in the world of paranoia and alpha complex?
1: I mean, I know um, and we talked about this a little bit in our like narrative mechanics episode but i know that in the second edition version they were very clear about like it's your job as the gm to make sure everyone's having a good time yourself included and it's friend computer's job to screw these people over and like having that delineation Mm -hmm. um uh, and making sure that like any time that something very bad happens to them it's friend computer's fault. It's not your fault. Um, and trying to have that, like, remove, um, which I think is useful, but also has you in this weird, like, you're my GM, you're my friend, and also my mortal enemy. Um, <laughs> sort of a a
2: thing happening in your brain. It's also the difference of, it's the GM's job to keep things interesting, and it's theoretically the computer's job to help, but. Those two goals are in kind of direct conflict. Again, talking about conflicting goals, like if the computer were actually good, if friend computer were good at what it does, then there would not be a very interesting story to any paranoia game. But that's the GM's role is to make the computer as like sincerely well intentional or well-intentioned while also being as profoundly harmful as Mm -hmm. possible And I think that's where a lot of the comedy lies is in driving, like right down that center line of super. I mean, we can put scare quotes around good, but like Mm
0: -hmm.
2: this super thinks it's on the side of having good intentions and also like vaporizing people, uh, because it's more efficient to vaporize all these clones when they may have been exposed to the death leopards than to like ask questions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then being like, but that's just helpful. Like, like now you, now you have new bodies and like your leg used to be broken and now it's no longer broken. So like,
0: this is a win-win all around. <laughs> I'm just always fascinated by like gameplay, like, because I think we view the GM or MC or DM or whatever as this like omniscient being, but for Paranoid to build a separate like omniscient being that is constantly in communication with everybody at the table that is distinct from the GM role is really interesting to me, just in terms of like the distinction is that the computer is, is antagonistic to the players and the GM is just like facilitating that relationship. Um, but I also think it's interesting because our campaign involved, um, Dave's which were, which are, this, it stands for deviant artificially intelligent viruses, which is like, Oh, I was so
1: close. (laughs) i tried to suss it out at one point while we were in in play and i was like oh is it this and ben was like no (laughs) well
0: he should be fair he probably would have he probably would have said no even if you were even if you were that's true that's true um but yeah i like i think that's a really really cool thing to explore is like how much power does the computer really have? And I know that it's treasonous to question how much power the computer has because the computer is all powerful. And, um, so don't, no one tell, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I find that really, really interesting and where that line is when you are role-playing as the computer, but you are also yourself like an omniscient, like knows what's going on.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and aren't the, aren't the Dave's, um, played by other players isn't that part of the goal is that like um you kind of pit the players against each other with limited knowledge and they're trying to like extract information or a favor or something out of uh the other players Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um which i think is just like it's interesting and weird and I think getting to hear people do that at the table was also fun um, because it was just like a weird new character that was alarming. Um, And we (laughs) like the the person playing them didn't necessarily know all of their motivations. I don't Mm -hmm. know. It was cool. Yeah,
0: it's baked into into the way that Dave's are implemented, that another person at the table is playing them, which I think is. Makes narrative sense. Um, in terms of like the GM is the computer and the computer is afraid of Dave's mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. lacks control over, um, cause that's the biggest thing in like the Dave section of the handbook is like the computer does not like these because it doesn't have control, um, mm-hmm. control over it. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting tool that does more of this kind of playing with like how narrative power is centralized and who has narrative power in the game. Um, of paranoia
2: and speaking of power i think that todd just mentioned something that's really essential to this to building this sense of paranoia specifically because <laughs> something we've been talking about behind the scenes is like what's the difference between paranoia and horror or terror like like what are the kind of fine distinctions between those and i think one of the things that paranoia the game and the i don't know what uh, affect state experience of mind. yeah the state of mind depends on is um it could, some of the things it depends on are secrecy and a, in a weird way like equality like Tell the game more. well the game the so the secret the secrecy is kind of obvious in that yeah you know you you having a secret and the potential for other people to have secrets is going to affect your actions but then there's also the fact that you're all trying to move toward a goal. Well, none of you have very much control over the situation, unlike in, say, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, where like, yes, you all have sort of similar amounts of narrative control. But realistically, because of how the like math of the game works, you actually are each sort of superheroes in just adjacent but not overlapping fields usually um Mm -hmm. the way that paranoia is just like yeah you're just a bunch of randos with some mostly arbitrarily assigned statistics any one of whom could just shoot one of the others because they think it's the right thing to do like that's that's what i mean when i say a weird kind of equality it depends on feeling vulnerable to other people Mm.
1: well and i also think it It helps that unlike in Dungeons and Dragons or like Pathfinder, like the characters are very squishy. Yeah. Like there is not much damage you can take. And in Dungeons and Dragons, it's like, yeah, that guy hit you with his greatsword like 15 times and you're still pretty (laughs) okay. And this is like someone shot a laser blaster next to you and it blew something else up and you're splattered all over the ground. Sorry. (laughs) New clone in 10 minutes.
0: Yeah, like I feel like weirdly the fact that like paranoia has built a lot of things that lower the stakes of dying makes it a lot easier not only to like take risks, but also it makes you more paranoid because like, I don't know. Yeah, you're you're extremely squishy. Everybody else is also extremely squishy. Everybody else is equally motivated. Every leg you might have up on somebody else, um, they also have up on you. And there's definitely the implication that like, because I think what you need for paranoia in addition to secrecy is like knowledge and the knowledge that there's knowledge you don't have. And the way paranoia sets things up in such a way that like, you know, there's stuff that you don't have you know, that there's stuff missing. You just don't know whether like the GM is whispering to somebody absolute nonsense or if they're whispering a very important secret about you and the treason that you've done
2: and that's well and that's where the gms that where the style of jamming plays into the paranoia is because the presentation to the players is supposed to be like uh, yes this is like a coherent world that makes sense and like functions and you have just only been granted like this level of information about it but then when you read the jam handbook they're like lol we don't know like make up the rules <laughs> We don't care, like make up the rules and ideally change them like on your players while they're while they're playing and just be like, oh, you entered a new like security zone or like. Well, they like, this- if they
0: call you on it, give them a treason star. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly.
2: Just be like it, it. Knowledge of the previous rules is treasonous. Here's a treason star, you filthy traitor, um, because that creates the illusion that there is like this whole thing that if you could only get it, you would be able to like triumph Mm -hmm. But you're constantly like running up against the arbitrariness of the non-system.
0: Well, and to borrow like a concept from my theater education, like everything appears purposeful when you are not the one who's making it. So the players are encountering this world that probably does to some extent seem pretty like fleshed out and purposeful and and thought through um, because they aren't in your brain and they don't know that you're making everything up. Um And the game, I think, very much encourages you to, like, turn everything back on the players and ask them, you know, what are you doing in this situation? How do you respond to this? And encourages that interaction between players. Because um, I think that's really what's doing almost all of the lifting in this game is is just turning things back on the group and getting the players to to tear each other apart.
1: Mm mm-hmm. There's another thing that I'm thinking about that I think adds to the the fidgety nature that I think we lost um, in this um, online, not at a table version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we talked in narrative, uh, you know, possibilities of the mechanics um, about the combat system and how it's like playing bullshit. Um, Mm -hmm. Where like you're bluffing with each other. But another thing that I think we didn't talk about is how quick it's supposed to be in that, like, you're supposed to slam a card down in three seconds. And if you don't, you don't get to take an action. And so there's no like, oh, uh, 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 I want to do this. It's like you have to have itchy trigger fingers to get anything done, which keeps you like very like, oh God, what if there's another thing around the corner? Um, Mm -hmm. And like, oh God, what if I just used my best thing and now I can't use it later? Um, But you know, inevitably,
0: like if I were the GM and I saw somebody use like a really cool, powerful thing, absolutely. There's like a giant, scary robot to fight around the next corner. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, Um, And so I think, I wonder if like that helps, Um, With adding this like level of paranoia, paranoia, and not just like fear, but this, this like second guessing, I don't have all the information, jumping at ghosts kind of vibe um, that I think is more in line with like ethos is a strong word for this. But like the ethos of paranoia, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: the vibe, I'm more into the vibe, the vibe of paranoia. Let's be (laughs) (laughs)
0: real. Yeah, I don't think paranoia has any (laughs) ethos. We've talked a lot about how when you're playing a TTRPG, you are both the performer and the audience at the same time. And I'm curious about y'all's thoughts on in 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 the setting of Paranoia, is it kind of is there a side of that that's more compelling to experience it from? Like, is it more compelling to be in a scene with the with the computer? Like you rolled a computer on the computer die and the computer notices you and you're like in that like, oh, ooh, ooh, what's going to happen feeling or if you're at the table and you're watching an interaction between other people and you're seeing some kind of like something unfold um especially in a context where y'all were seeing things that you might not necessarily like your character maybe wasn't seeing but you the player are watching an interaction that definitively proves that everybody else has a secret society for example Mm -hmm. um so i'm yeah i guess i guess i'm curious is it more compelling to be like experiencing that as an audience member watching other interactions at the table or to experience it directly as a player character.
1: Hmm. I mean, I think uh, this was such a fun group of people to play with, and it was just like a delight to sit back and watch, especially because I hadn't played with any of these people before. Like I knew Ben, I knew Corey, I knew Miko. I didn't know Romana, um, but I hadn't played with any of them, like anything. Mm-hmm. Not just Paranoia, but anything. Uh, and so getting to see how they were is all bit like, I don't know. I always find it delightful to have people that I have in my life and then see them performing, whether that's in a tabletop thing or in a theater thing. It's just a like, Oh, that's a fun, different side of you (laughs) that I didn't know you had. Um, So I always enjoy that. But like from a, from a paranoid perspective, um, I mean, I think it's fun to be I don't know. It was fun to have those one on ones with Ben where I was being like grilled by mm-hmm. the computer and trying to be like, uh, 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 um, that, uh, we're not doing anything wrong, I think. <laughs> um, and being put on the spot like that. Whereas, mm-hmm. like, normally, if I were, if I were going to do like a, like role play bluffing past someone in a different game, I would like work out like, oh, I'm going to say some stuff like this and that'll like get me on their good side. And instead it's like, nope, you're in a scene now and you don't have any time to prepare. So you're in a scene, Um, which I think adds that like heightened anxiety. It's like the actor's nightmare where you're just like suddenly on stage.
2: Yeah. I, I think the games, this game seems to want, the player and character experiences to be closer, like more heavily overlapped than mm. most game, most tabletop games, um, which I just find interesting. But that's what all these things are pushing toward. Like Todd said is, you know, making the player feel the like anxiety or itchy trigger fingerness or uh, suddenly put on the spotness of talking with the computer as well as the character
0: yeah i guess you can't really metagame in paranoia because everything is moving too fast for you to really like and metagaming would be treasonous mm-hmm. um, so but yeah that's actually a thing that i hadn't fully like hadn't fully gelled for me is you're right the player character experience are extremely similar
1: well and it's like i don't know if you're doing a heist in a different game like let's say you're doing a break-in and you're in some shop after hours like you can roll a terrible check. And then like the cops show up. But usually that isn't narratively what's going to happen unless you did something like really, really terrible. And here, like succeed or fail, the computer might notice you at any moment and you like might be caught with your hand in the cookie jar at any moment. And so there's no like I have an alibi for this. There's like uh this was what you told me to do, wasn't it? I think I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure you told me this was what we wanted to do. Is that not, did
0: I get that wrong?
1: Oops. Uh.
0: Yeah. And there's only so dumb you can play. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And it's definitely, I think a cool opportunity to explore. Cause like if that happened to me in real life, absolutely not. I would hate that. (laughs) I never want to feel like that ever. Um, (laughs) But there's something kind of thrilling about it when you're experiencing it in an environment where like, it's very clear by your bevy of clones that um, like the stakes are low and if you die, whatever, because you you got a bunch of clones. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's really exciting and thrilling to bring it back to theater. There's like a catharsis to it um, to experience those things in a safe environment and like get that thrill and that release. And then it's like, Oh, okay. There's no computer in my real life. Um, (laughs) If the Jenga tower falls Everything will be fine and and the eldritch horrors looming in the shadows will not come and get me Percy um mm. I hope um,
1: <laughs> we always hope
0: we always hope um <laughs> oh no well now I... well, now I'm worried about it.
2: <laughs> I also think it's fun, um and and i'm suddenly realizing that maybe this is one reason red clearance paranoia looks a little like a like board game but i was going to say it's sometimes fun to just play games where you like can be competitive Mm -hmm. um and there's not very much of that in the tabletop sphere you know like Mm. there's there's people who enjoy both tabletop and like i don't know chess or whatever you know like a game (laughs) where a game where your goal is actually to like defeat the other player um Mm -hmm. and that's not your goal per se in paranoia but i think with a group of friends who are all comfortable doing this with each other it can be fun to just for a change of place be like no now now we're going to be horrible to each other in this like you know play sphere Mm -hmm. um because that's that's just a fun thing to do sometimes who hasn't
1: thought about stabbing all of their other players in the back, you know, around a rousing game of Dungeons and or Dragons?
0: Well, uh, on that note, um, <laughs> if you do not have ultraviolet clearance and somehow you have listened to the content of this episode, CoolBot69 is coming to coming to mow you down. CoolBot69 is
1: going to blow you away.
0: Well, that 69 coming for you. Um, but if you do have ultraviolet clearance, um, thank you for listening to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. We'll see you next week.
1: Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack and Nick Orvis and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertaldine. Find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at DN Nerds. Check out our cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons & Drama Nerds.